Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 2 Zarathustra climbed down the mountain alone, and no one encountered him. But when he came into the forest, there suddenly stood before him an old man who had left his holy hut in order to search in the forest for roots. And thus spoke the old man to Zarathustra, No stranger to me is this wanderer. Many years ago he passed by here before. Zarathustra he was called, but now he has transformed himself. Then you were carrying your ashes to the mountains. Would you today carry your fire into the valleys? Do you not fear the arsonist's punishment? Yes, I recognize Zarathustra. Clear is his eye, and round his mouth no trace of disgust. Does he not walk like a dancer? Zarathustra is transformed. Zarathustra has become a child. Zarathustra is an awakened one. What do you want now among sleepers? You lived in your solitude as if in the sea, and the sea bore you up. Alas, you want to climb onto land? Alas, you want to drag your body yourself again? Zarathustra answered, I love human beings. But why, said the holy man, did I go into the forest in the desert? Was it not because I loved human beings all too much? Now I love God. Human beings I love not. The human being is for me too incomplete in affair. Love of human beings would be the death of me. Zarathustra answered, What did I say of love? I bring human beings a present. Give them nothing, said the holy man. Rather take something from them and carry it for them. That will do them the greatest good, as long as it does you good. And if you would give to them, then give them nothing more than alms, and let them beg even for that. No, answered Zarathustra, I give no alms. For that I am not poor enough. The holy man laughed at Zarathustra and spoke to him thus. Then see to it that they accept your treasures. They are suspicious of solitaries, and do not believe that we come in order to bestow. Too lonely for them is the sound of our footsteps in the lanes. And when in their beds at night they hear a man going by long before the sun has risen, they surely ask themselves, Where is that thief going? Do not go to human beings, but stay in the forest. Go rather even to the beasts. Why would you not be like me? a bear among the bears, a bird among the birds. And what does the holy man do in the forest? asked Zarathustra. The holy man answered, I make up songs and sing them, and as I make up songs, I laugh and weep and growl. Thus do I praise God. With singing, weeping, laughing, and growling, I praise the God who is my God. But what do you bring us as a present? When Zarathustra heard these words, he saluted the holy man and said, What could I have to give to you? But let me go quickly, then I might take nothing from you. And thus they parted from each other, the old man and the younger, laughing, just like two boys laughing. But when Zarathustra was alone again, he spoke thus to his heart. 
Could this be possible? This old holy man in his forest has heard nothing of this yet. That God is dead. Hey everyone, and welcome to Zarathustra's Prologue Part 2. So after the Prologue Part 1 soliloquy that Zarathustra gave to the sun, and once he begins his going under, sort of Nietzsche's shorthand for this is going to be a struggle, but Zarathustra wants to do it, we, we find Zarathustra after he comes down from the mountain, after encountering no one and coming into the forest to meet an old man. And so, again, just some imagery about some of the heights that we were talking about before, where Zarathustra was living on this mountain. And in Nietzsche's philosophy, generally, we do run into a lot of, even in his other books that aren't, uh, that aren't stories, they're actually philosophy, he, he has a lot of allegory about smart people living in the heights, that philosophy is the voluntary living amongst uh, ice and high mountains, that the difference between the exoteric and the esoteric uh, are exoteric is someone looking at something from below that they don't understand and they're looking at the superficial exterior of it. Whereas with the esoteric, sort of the thing that's defined as being hard to know, arcane, difficult, uh, intrinsic knowledge, Nietzsche says that esoteric knowledge is seen from above, that you're looking down on something. And it's sort of, if you think about anything that you're particularly good at, you can sort of see how that imagery works where you, your, your spirit has elevated itself so high, you've built up this tower of understanding in a particular area that uh, if you look at a problem that you might have had trouble with before that now you're quite expert with, you, you're sort of looking down on that problem. You see it from above. Uh, I know in some of my working experience, um, when I've been asked to manage and train and mentor uh, different people, when I'm faced with certain problems that they have that I remember that I had uh, at those times, I remember when I was struggling with them being sort of uh, in the weeds with the issues, I couldn't really get any perspective, but once I had gotten a bit older and a bit more experienced and a bit more trained up, uh, I would look on the problems and I could sort of look down on them. So there, there's some good imagery and that we're going to encounter a lot of that sort of thing uh, within the rest of this book. And if you're interested in Nietzsche in the rest of his philosophy. So Zarathustra comes down and he meets an old holy man who recognizes Zarathustra. Uh, he recognizes him from years ago when Zarathustra first left his home and went to the mountain. Uh, he remembers, yeah, you're Zarathustra, but you're, you're transformed somehow. He says, back then, ten years ago, you were carrying your ashes to the mountains. Would you today carry your fire into the valleys? And so there's some pretty good imagery here. You can sort of tell that, to use modern parlance, that when Zarathustra was going into the mountains, he was burnt out. Um... Who he was had become ashes, so the modern terminology of being burnt out, you're working too hard, you're burning the candle at both ends, you sort of, you you give up yourself for in the pursuit of whatever it is that you're doing. To use a more ancient or more mythological way of looking at it, it's sort of like the phoenix. You know, the phoenix has to die and is reborn and has its second life. You see this death and birth motif, in this case it's more a spiritual death and rebirth, the ideas that Zarathustra had tried to live by weren't working. They burnt him out. He needed to go work on his worldview so that he could live in alignment with a philosophy that made sense, a view of reality that made sense. 
And now the old man sort of sees that this Zarathustra-type guy with his new ideas, uh, bringing them back to humanity is going to be a dangerous influence because many things will need to be destroyed in that process of creative destruction that we've alluded to before in order to rebuild upon a more solid foundation uh, based on Nietzsche's view of reality, Zarathustra's view of reality. So we then get into a bit of description about Zarathustra. I gave a bit in the first part of the prologue about uh, Zarathustra's air of thanksgiving and sort of the way that he situates himself towards life. This is sort of the first physical description we get of Zarathustra. Yes, I recognize Zarathustra. Clear is his eye, and around his mouth no trace of disgust. Does he not walk like a dancer? Zarathustra is transformed. Zarathustra has become a child. Zarathustra is an awakened one. What do you want now among sleepers? And so this is just trying to, in my head, show that Zarathustra is a pretty clear-minded person. He's not disgusted by humanity, disgusted by anything, that he sort of sees reality for how it is, his eyes are clear, and around his mouth no trace of disgust. He, he accepts all the things in reality that are sort of disgusting or gross or low that he may not be a fan of. Um, and he walks like a dancer. He's very light on his feet. He's very graceful. And physically, physically that's a pretty cool trait. It's nice when people have a nice walking stride uh, rather than shuffling around like some sort of oaf or if they're wearing their pants stupidly low so that they can't walk. Um, someone who walks like a dancer, that does look a bit better. So in terms of that idea of a beautiful human and human development physically, that's a nice idea. But we'll also see that this comes up uh, in a psychological sense too, a spiritual sense too. We see this sort of dancing theme and being light on one's feet. Uh, and Nietzsche means that a lot of the time as a spiritual faculty where your, your mind, you're able to move quickly from idea to idea and not get too bogged down by them. Um, so then the old man continues and he starts to question Zarathustra. What the hell are you doing coming back here? You lived in your solitude as if in the sea and the sea carried you. You want to go onto land again? You want to drag your body yourself again? You want to put in effort living? You want to, you want to do all this stuff? And Zarathustra's justification is that he loves human beings. He says, you know, I love human beings enough that the effort is worth it. The holy man then says, oh, but, but why? Why did I go into the forest and the desert? Was it not because I loved human beings all too much? Now I love God. Human beings I love not. The human being is for me too incomplete an affair. Love of human beings would be the death of me. And so this is where we start to see some of what I alluded to in the last lecture, where the Zarathustra is sort of the perfect instantiation of what the uh, wisest version of someone who adheres to Nietzsche's philosophy would look like, what he would say, what he would believe, uh, what his actions would be, sort of the instantiation of the wise man according to Nietzsche's philosophy. And this old man in the forest is sort of the instantiation of the wise man who governs himself according to Platonic Christian ideas. And so <clears throat> when you think of it in the context of that, uh, there are, if you're someone who 
really is fascinated by reality, fascinated by the one, fascinated by God, and you've had that experience or that insight where you're the universe looking at itself and being conscious of itself, there's a certain amount of uh, love and loving feeling and gratefulness and thanksgiving that comes from that. But your, your thanksgiving and your love and everything is aimed towards this reality that you can't really understand. That everything that you ascribe to that reality, that it's perfect, that it's whole, that it's good, that it's great, uh, your imagination can begin to try and push the limits on how much it can love and be fascinated by such an interesting thing that it can't understand or know. And so this holy man, uh, he's a perfect instantiation of the wise man of the Platonic Christian ideals because the wise man is sort of the person who lives in that reality. And he says, why did I go into the solitude? Was it not because I loved human beings? He says, I love human beings because they are a part of God. Uh, and so therefore I love them so much because they are also a part of reality just as I am. But when I see their behavior, when I see how lascivious they are, when I hear their, in today's day and age, really crummy uh, club music where it's all about taking drugs and buying fast cars and just things that are generally sort of gross to look at, this person who's obsessed with perfection and reality and sort of the highest ideals you can think of didn't like the what... I don't know, even a Christian today would describe as very base, ugly, human things. Um, so he says, no, now I love God. Human beings I love not. The human being is for me too incomplete an affair. Love of human beings would be the death of me. And he's basically saying, like, again, humans, comp humans in their baseness, in their smallness, in, in their grossness, in all the weird things about us... Um, we don't compare to my imagined version of how pristine and pure and beautiful reality is. So I had to, loving human beings and trying to take in all that muck and garbage that comes along with human beings would be the death of me. Therefore, I had to run into this forest to just hang out with God and live with God and enjoy myself. So Zarathustra's answer here, and this is something that I didn't get until oof, my 20th read-through. Zarathustra answered, what did I say of love? I bring human beings a present. And so I never understood why he said, what did I say of love? And I, the way that I understand that, it's, it shows how much that the wise man, according to Nietzsche's philosophy, loves much more. Uh, and the type of love that they have is much more encompassing and deep than the love that the perfect instantiation of the platonic christian wise man is capable of so the platonic christian idea of love stops at god and it says you know god is the best thing and everything else is sort of crappy so i don't want to deal with that because it makes me feel bad on behalf of god and behalf of myself that human beings are so base zarathustra's answer is no uh, that's that's not love. That's a paltry form of love. Love is bigger. Love, love accepts even the smallest and most base and gross things. And so that's why he's saying that. And it's sort of, at this point in the book, I haven't given you a lot of reasons of why Nietzsche's philosophy leads to that. 
but it just goes to show the type of person Zarathustra is, the type of person that if you work on yourself and you start to see reality the way Nietzsche describes it, the way that you yourself can sort of develop yourself uh, and really just shows what a capable person Zarathustra is and how deep his appreciation for things goes and even deeper than someone who's merely Christian or platonic or whatever. So I bring human beings a present. Give them nothing, said the old man. Rather take something from them and carry it for them. That will do them the greatest good as long as it does you good. So this is uh, sort of touching on the Christian idea of charity that um, Nietzsche brings them a present. The, the old holy man says, no, take something away from them. You need to ease their suffering, but only if it does you good. Uh, and if you would give to them, then give them nothing more than alms. Give them some a little bit of money and let them beg even for that. And Zarathustra says, no, I give no alms. For that, I'm not poor enough. And this is an interesting thing because um, Christian pity and the idea of taking taking on the suffering of others and trying to lessen the load for other people is uh, one of the things that Nietzsche is really trying to rail against. Um, one of the ideas we're going to see a lot in this book is that um, human struggle and human greatness and human development are, are joined at the hip. That if you want yourself to be good or great or excellent in any way, that it, the only way to do that is by taking on intense struggle. So if you want to be a great singer, you got to take years and years of singing classes. If you want to be uh, Mr. Olympia, you got to work out at the gym every day. Uh, if you want to be really anything, it takes a lot of work. And so the Christian idea says, no, 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 Like people are suffering. People are so poor and worthless. We need to lighten their load. And Zarathustra says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not poor enough for that. I'm not poor enough in spirit for that. I'm not poor enough a person. I have better gifts to give than just money or lightening someone's load. Uh, so the holy man then goes on for a bit and says, Well, make sure they accept your treasures. They're suspicious of solitaries and do not believe that we come in order to bestow. Um, and he's basically warning Zarathustra that the mob, the, the rabble, the people of the marketplace that we're going to meet in the next section, um, general population uh, of civil society don't, don't necessarily trust the independent spirits who stand out from the crowd and even though they're trying to often do things for the welfare of the rest of humanity that the rest of humanity may not even be aware of that that other group of the non-independent people hate the independent people they don't trust them they don't understand why the why the heck is this person living in the woods and doing their thing he must be a creep he must be a thief he must be something and uh, we will see quite a bit of uh, Zarathustra sort of railing against what the mass of people think about his type of person. Uh, and his type of person, the person reading this book, the person listening to this audio lecture series, is the person who genuinely wants to develop themselves to be the best that they can be in whatever unique, independent way that is. And the distance that that creates between those sorts of people and sort of many of the people that you find in society is a, a recurring theme that we're going to find in Zarathustra where Nietzsche will describe many of the feelings that the crowd has against the solitaries and 
the independent people, people who want to develop themselves and do good things. Uh, so the old man, that's sort of a, a common thing that the Christian old holy man and Zarathustra are going to recognize it, regardless of what philosophy you're, you're, you're espousing or acting in accordance with or believing in accordance with. Generally, the people who are excellent in any area, regardless of what philosophy, are often not really appreciated by the people who are contemporaneous with them. So with philosophers, it's sort of a common story. With Schopenhauer, he was only popular when he was an older man. With Nietzsche, he was only popular once he started to go crazy and then once he died. That even with ideas and stuff, that new ideas are at first hated. People hate ideas and then people laugh at them and then eventually they're accepted as true. Um, so this is something that is just a common trend with people, trends, movements generally. Um, so even, again, I've used this example a couple times just in the first lectures, even the, the, the thought of gay marriage, the, the institution of gay marriage, um, at first it was laughed at, like people would, from the 50s, leave it to Beaver family, would be like, gay marriage, ah, ha, ha, that's ridiculous. Then as it starts to pick up steam and people start thinking of it more, trying to do it, People get really, really angry, um, <laughs> often irrationally. And then once it becomes accepted and there's sort of enough people in society approve of it, it becomes sort of common knowledge that it's always been the right thing to do and it's ridiculous to assume otherwise. And so whether it's the solitary who's introducing new ideas or pushing the boundaries of uh, human limits or even different trends and movements, the that's what this section, I think, is talking about. So Zarathustra says, okay, well, what do you do in the forest? And the holy man says, oh, I make up songs and sing them. And as I make them up, I laugh and weep and growl. Thus do I praise my God. And this is sort of just... <laughs> if you contrast that with what Zarathustra is trying to do, you can sort of see at the peak ethical output of the two different philosophies the wise man the best instantiation of the intellectual man of christianity and platonism is some dude that lives in a forest not doing anything and sings songs and laughs and cries uh, whereas zarathustra as we saw in the first section has this has the same sort of thanksgiving towards reality but probably a bit more because he loves human beings enough to go back to them even though they're in many cases so wanting um so not just in the air of thanksgiving is zarathustra a, a more deeper person a more capable person but also in his ethical actions according to the nietzschean philosophy of actually doing something with what he has uh, and we'll sort of see as we go in, like, why why philosophically Nietzsche thinks that this would happen and why it's a good idea and sort of why metaphysically it makes more sense than just sort of chilling and trying to exist as much as possible in this ideal reality that the Christian holy man is trying to do. And so Zarathustra sort of hears this and he starts laughing at the guy and says, oh, what could I have to give to you? Let me go quickly that I might take nothing from you. And they both go away laughing, sort of each thinking that, they're right and that the other person has no idea what they're doing uh, and then zarathustra 
in probably what probably what Nietzsche is most famous for saying ends this section off saying, could this be possible? This old holy man in this forest has heard nothing of this yet, that God is dead. And this line is very famous. Um, he didn't mean that literally. He didn't mean that some old white bearded guy in the sky died. Uh, he's saying that Christianity, and at least in Europe and even every religion everywhere, like, but Nietzsche was speaking primarily of European Christians, but the same applies to different religions, that uh, the ability to believe in religion uh, no longer exists because we're, we know too much, we're, we're too thoughtful, we're too honest with ourselves, that with uh, Christian morality itself in another book, uh, Nietzsche says, Christian morality itself, in the form of honesty, makes us declare that Christianity is ridiculous. And so we will get into a bunch of the reasons why Nietzsche thinks this, but a lot of people maybe misinterpret this and say, oh yeah, the big man in the sky is dead. No, it's just our ability to believe in Christianity, our our ability to use that as the foundation for how we make decisions and all the things that flow from Christianity uh, that worldview is dead and that we need a new one. And so he says, yeah, the old way is dead and this old holy man is being foolish because he's still living according to this thing that no longer carries any water. That old worldview is worn out. And that's what Zarathustra's whole mission in this book is going to be, to sort of declare that this, the whole worldview and everything that's based on Christianity, which is, again, similar to Plato, everything, uh, the, everything that we do according to the, that morality must be changed. We have to look at everything with new eyes. We have to look at everything with fresh eyes according to Zarathustra's new philosophy uh, or Nietzsche's new philosophy. So that wraps up section two. It's, uh, again, from a structural point of view, I love how this book is written. Uh, there's a lot of weird just how the chapters are structured and what ideas are are placed in what order. I think Nietzsche was not just in his ideas, but in his structuring of the book, a brilliant guy. Uh, because this, it's sort of, first you're introduced to Zarathustra, he's this very thankful person, his heart is overflowing, and then it compares him immediately to, okay, if you take the perfect version of Nietzsche's philosophy and the perfect version of a Christian or a Platonic philosopher, and you put them next to each other, and you show what their ethical actions are, you show how capable of loving they are, you show sort of who they are, to immediately on on the second page of the book try and get you to say, yeah, that Zarathustra guy is a much more reasonable, less crazy person. Um, and it, it sort of shows, like, in a very physical, story-wise manifestation that the, Zer the Nietzschean philosophy makes a lot more sense for real living, for real life, for modeling your decisions and your personality development and everything based on that, rather than doing things on uh, Christian and Platonic philosophy. Because if you do that, you're just going to be a crazy person who uh, lives in the forest and sings songs and makes things up and praises God. And maybe you wouldn't do that, but uh, say a lot of the hippie culture, a lot of people who just take 
whether it's magic mushrooms or LSD or whatever other ego-dissolving drugs frequently to sort of uh, have mystical experiences. And, and they probably wouldn't use the terminology commune with God, but that's essentially what they're doing. They're trying to live in this mystical realm. And I don't know. Hippies bring a lot of good things to the world. I think some of the music they came up with in the 60s is good, but uh, when I look at hippies, personally, I don't feel attracted to be that kind of person. So I think that's good for this section for Zarathustra's prologue part two. I was not quite intending on bashing the hippies quite so early, but it's almost unavoidable if you're dealing with this philosophy. So join me in the in Zarathustra's prologue part three. We're going to see that Zarathustra comes into a town and meets a crowd of people. And we're also going to learn another of Nietzsche's most famous ideas, the Ubermensch, the overman or overhuman or superman. And we will see what he has to say about that. Thanks for joining. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please make sure you go to the iTunes store and rate the show. You can follow me on Twitter at, at AlexJDrake. If you know of anyone that you think would like this show, please share with them. And for more information, you can visit me on my website at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, everyone.